And if you would, follow along with me as we read from God's inspired and inerrant Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together and ask God for His grace now as we listen to His word. Father, please help us to receive the word of God with faithful, believing hearts. Please make us open, Father, to the Holy Spirit's work, we ask. Lord, please encourage those who are discouraged. Please strengthen, Father, those who are weak. Please correct those who are wayward. Please break the hard-hearted. Please save the lost. And please do good to your church now through your word. Please keep me from error. Please grant us discernment, God, to hold fast to the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to truly follow Jesus? As you think about the culture of our day, this is a question we need to address with more clarity. What does it mean to follow Jesus? The need for clarity arises from two contemporary challenges to the church, both of which can easily hijack our thinking and therefore derail our discipleship. The first challenge is perhaps the most obvious one. It's the challenge of secularism, which defines life without any reference to God or religious teaching. Think of our own culture, friends, where a full 26% of Americans now claim no religious affiliation. That's a dramatic increase over the last three decades. And that's the world we live in. Secularism demands a clear answer on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus. But there's a second challenge facing the church, and considering our context here in the Bible Belt, this challenge is arguably even more pressing for a congregation like ours. It's the challenge of nominalism, or more specifically, nominal Christianity. This is Christianity in name only. That is, people who claim the name of Christian but don't actually practice the faith, they aren't committed to Christ and his church, and they, don't have really, they really don't have any intention of building their lives on scriptural truth. I mean, think of that label that I just used a second ago, the Bible Belt. What is that describing, even if it's passing away? What is that describing? Well, basically, it's describing nominal Christianity. 
This wide swath of people who claim the name Christian, but don't actually practice the faith. But here's the uncomfortable question, brothers and sisters. Where does nominalism come from? How does it come into being and take root in a culture? Well, the answer, if we're honest, lies with the church. It lies with us. Nominal Christianity takes root wherever the church fails to clearly answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? As clarity on that question goes down, nominalism goes up. And that's why, friends, I say we need more clarity on what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to be a Christian. Look, by all means, we need to be aware of the challenge of secularism, which will only increase in the days ahead. But just as, just as importantly, we need to be clear that following Jesus cannot happen in name only. There is no Christianity in name only. So if secularism challenges the church from the outside, nominalism challenges it from within. And therefore, we need to be clear, friends, on what it means to truly follow Jesus. And there's no one better positioned to help us with that challenge than the Lord Jesus Himself. One of the many blessings of preaching through the Gospels. I would preach through the Gospels for the rest of our time on earth if I could. But the Lord says preach the whole counsel of God. One of the many blessings of preaching through the Gospels is that we are reminded of the crystal clear precision that Jesus uses to define discipleship. For Jesus, there is nothing so serious, nothing so urgent, nothing so necessary as the call to discipleship. This thing we call the Christian life is no small matter to Jesus. He speaks clearly. At times, shockingly clear. And that means there's no one better than Jesus to help us confront the challenge of Christianity in name only. And our passage this morning, friends, is a powerful example of how Jesus does this. You'll notice in your Bibles that our text is the conclusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. It began back in verse 20. And it represents Jesus' call to discipleship. And as we've seen, that call is radical. Jesus turns the ways of the world upside down. True blessing, Jesus says in verse 20, is found in dependence on God, even when that dependence is costly. Love, Jesus reminds us in verse 27, is to be expressed not just toward those who love you, but towards your enemies as well. Mercy, Jesus teaches in verse 36, leads us to give what we first received and truly caring for other people. Jesus says in verse 41, begins with rejecting self-righteousness in favor of honestly addressing our own sins. Friends, do you hear how relentless Jesus is in clarifying what it means to follow Him? He leaves no room for misunderstanding. He's answering both of the challenges that we face. When you listen to Jesus, like in this passage, you quickly realize there's no way to understand life apart from God. But more importantly, for our purposes this morning, there's also no room for being a Christian in name only when you listen to Jesus. Jesus demands that your entire life, from your thinking to your pursuits to your relationships, everything, your entire life 
be defined in relationship to Him and to His Word. He demands all of it. And that's why I say there's no one better than Jesus to help us confront the challenges we face. And this text is a good example because Jesus leaves no room for Christianity in name only. And this, this last section of the sermon that we're dealing with here in Luke 6 really drives this emphasis home. Here in these closing verses, Jesus gives us two marks of true discipleship. The whole sermon has been a call to discipleship, but here at the end, the clarity increases, you might say, and Jesus gives us two marks of true discipleship, both of which help us answer the question, what does it mean to truly follow Jesus? So let's look at those two marks from the Lord. The first is in verses 43-45. to True discipleship begins with heart transformation. True discipleship begins with heart transformation. Jesus does something a bit unique in this section of, of His sermon. He puts the illustration first, but before He gives the principle. Notice the illustration Jesus uses. It's a simple picture of a powerful point. Verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Jesus' point is straightforward. Fruit corresponds to nature. Or we might even say that fruit reveals nature. Healthy trees bear good fruit. Unhealthy trees bear bad fruit. And once the fruit is seen, there's no way that you can hide the, fruits, uh, the tree's nature. In fact, notice the last line of verse 44 where Jesus makes just, just this point. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Again, fruit reveals nature. And you can't break that connection. You can't hide it. You can have the best gardening practices in the world. You can have all the miracle grow you want to get. And you're never going to have grapes from a thorn bush. Doesn't work. Why? Because a plant's nature determines its fruit. Fruit, you see, reveals the nature of something. Now, in the context of Jesus' sermon, this is the Lord's final rebuke to the hypocrite back in verse 42. You remember that? guy in verse 42 who's pretending he's got the log in his eye, but he's too busy picking at other people. This is Jesus' final rebuke against the hypocrite. This is why self-righteous hypocrisy is ultimately foolish. Because after a while, you can't fake it anymore, friends. After a while, the fruit of your life will reveal the true nature of your heart. And indeed, that's where Jesus goes in verse 45. He's, giving the, he's, he's already given the illustration. Now He applies the illustration to our lives. Notice the Lord's very strong words. Verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart... His mouth speaks. Again, Jesus is straightforward. You might be thinking, what about the person in the middle, Jesus? And He says, there's not one. It's good or evil. He's straightforward. And just as fruit reveals a plant's nature, so also the actions of our lives reveal the nature of our hearts. There's a connection between the two. Just like the connection there is between a tree's root and its fruit. A person's life how they live reveals the nature of his or her heart. 
Now we should pause here and remind ourselves of what Jesus means when he speaks of the heart. In Scripture, the heart represents the control center of life. The heart is the place of your affections and your desires. And those affections and desires shape what we live for. We all like to think that we're just rational creatures who always make logical reasoning deductions about how we live. But we live based on our passions. We live based on what we love. Right? The heart is the control center of life. In fact, Jesus' image in verse 45 is actually summarizing all of that biblical teaching in, in one fell swoop. Jesus envisions the heart like a treasure chest. That's what He means when He talks about good treasure and evil treasure. He's not talking about treasure out there that you go looking for. He's talking about the treasure inside that you've stored up. The things that you love. The things that are precious to you. The things that are valuable. That's what your heart is like. It's a treasure chest. And it's storing up all of that stuff. And from the store of that treasure, you act. You live. You do things. You make decisions. You bear fruit. And that fruit reveals what kind of heart we have. That fruit reveals what kind of treasure you have. The good person whose heart is good produces good, while the evil, per evil person produces what's evil. Again, it's a simple but radical point. The heart is the seat of human life. And therefore, how we live reveals what's going on inside. Before we move on, friends, I hope you see here how vital it is that we guard what enters our hearts. It's now sadly popular in our day to just kind of mockingly cite Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. If you hear anybody cite that verse these days, they probably mean it sarcastically as though the scripture is just quaint or cute, like a little verse that you put on a poster in a kid's room. But it's true, friends, that we should be vigilant over what enters our minds and then flows to our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we pursue and love and cherish matters far more than we realize. What we store up in our hearts shapes how we live. So I'll just ask you, what are you storing up in your heart? What is it that you cherish and prize and treasure. Listen, there's a reason that the first step in our church's mission statement is that word treasure. It's because of passages like this in Luke chapter 6. What you treasure shapes how you live. What you love shapes what you give yourself to. So what are you treasuring? What is your heart pursuing? You answer that question, friends, and you'll very likely find what's shaping the trajectory of your life day in and day out. Now, at this point, we have to deal with one of the hard realities of Jesus' teaching. Remember I said there's no one better than Jesus to confront Christianity and name only. And here's the prime example of that. The hard reality is this. Every one of us comes into this world with a bad, evil heart. By nature... Each one of us is an evil person who produces evil. Think of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we come into this world dead in our trespasses and sins. That's our nature, friends. Our hearts are dead, cold, 
lifeless. So if we use Jesus' analogy of a tree, then each person has rotten roots that can't produce any good fruit by nature. You see, the Apostle Paul and Jesus are actually talking about the same reality. It's the reality of human depravity. Or, we could say, our sin nature. By nature, we are depraved. And that depravity infects every aspect of our being. And therefore, if, we've left, if we're left to ourselves, the fruit of our lives will always be evil. This is key, friends, to understanding Jesus' point. Verse 45 is not telling you that there are two options before you, good and evil, and therefore you better make the right choice to be a good person. That is not Jesus' point at all. Rather, Jesus' point is for us to recognize that following Him, being a Christian, what we call discipleship, following Jesus requires more than mere outward behavioral change. Following Jesus requires a transformation of the heart. To be Jesus' disciple, you need a new nature. You need a new heart. You need life infused into the roots of your soul. And only then will you bear the good fruit that God requires. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, I, I hope that you see here the truth of what it means to follow Jesus. Being a Christian can never be reduced to simply doing more good things. That's like a farmer who goes out every morning and staples apples to a bunch of oak trees. Yeah, you're supposed to laugh because it's silly. Has he made the oak trees into apple trees? Has he changed their nature? No. No. And to suggest that he has would be foolish. But think of how often we make the same mistake when it comes to Christianity. We think, well, if I just add enough good things, if I just staple on enough good fruit, then I'll be a Christian. But friend, that no more makes you a Christian than stapling those apples turns the oaks into apple trees. It doesn't make you a Christian at all. Christianity is not about merely changing what's on the outside. It's not about adding good stuff. Christianity is a matter of the heart. This is why becoming a Christian is referred to as conversion. Something changes, not just on the outside, but at the core of who you are. Listen, friends, it is essential that we think clearly on this point. If you're a member of Midtown Baptist Church, this is monumentally important for the life of the church. We must think and speak clearly about conversion. We need to get this question right. What is the first step of discipleship? What is the first step in someone being converted? Well, Jesus alludes to it here in verse 45. The first step is what the Bible calls regeneration. You need to be a new tree. You need new heart. You need new roots. Conversion begins then not with our decision, but with God's decision. By grace, God gives dead sinners like us new natures. He makes us alive. The clearest verse in the Bible on God's work and salvation, Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy made us alive. What did you do? Nothing. What did God do? Everything. He makes us alive. He changes our hearts. Do you see the necessity of friends? It's, 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 it's a work that only God can do. 
God by His grace removes dead, lifeless hearts that bear only bad fruit. And God gives us new hearts. He infuses life into the roots of our soul. And only then do our lives begin to bear good fruit. Friends, if we don't keep this truth straight, we risk confusing both ourselves and other people on what it means to be a Christian. And that confusion can have eternal consequences for people's souls. If we don't keep this truth in view, then we will perpetuate the plague of nominal Christianity, that you can be a Christian in name only. Being a Christian is not about adding good works to your life like the farmer who staples apples to an oak tree. Being a Christian is actually a miracle of grace. There's a dead tree in my backyard. If I were to go home today and find that tree in bloom, I would think, it's a miracle because the tree's dead. It's the same way when a sinner becomes a Christian, friends. You should see their life, see my life, see your life, and think, that's a miracle. It's a miracle of grace that only God could do it. Following Christ begins with God causing you to be made new. With God giving you a new heart that bears fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, even as we remind ourselves of that key truth, and I hope we never forget it, ever, there's another question that is perhaps lurking in our minds. I know this is a question that was lurking in my mind this week as I was thinking about this. And the question is this. If I am a Christian, then why is there still so much bad fruit in my life? (laughs) If God has given me a new heart, then why are there still evil, sinful deeds present? Have any of you ever asked that question? Maybe you asked it today. Maybe you asked it yesterday. It's the question of how to understand our remaining sin. If being a Christian means receiving a new nature from God, then why do I still struggle with sin? That's the question. Well, brothers and sisters, this is where we need to remember that as Christians, we live in between two ages. Right? We live in between two ages. We live in between the already and the not yet of God's great saving work. And there's a tension there between the already and the not yet. And that tension is called your life. It's where we live. So on the one hand, I'm already a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. As a Christian, I am no longer a slave to sin. Praise God. And even my struggle against sin demonstrates that I'm free, that I'm alive. As one old preacher said, a dead person doesn't struggle. So even the struggle against sin is an evidence of life. It's an evidence of God's grace in my heart. I'm already a new creation in Christ. And yet, on the other hand, I'm not yet glorified with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm not yet reigning with the Lord Jesus in the new Jerusalem. And therefore, I have this war. I have this tension going on inside of my soul where the last vestiges of that old man wage war against the new man that God has created me to be. But this is key, friends. This this is the key point. That struggle against sin is not a sign that God's work has failed. That struggle against sin is a sign that God's work is ongoing. That it's happening right now. 
even as I fight against sin. You see, our fight against sin is part of the good fruit Jesus speaks of here in verse 45. When I confess my sin, I bear the fruit of the Spirit's work in my life. When I memorize the Bible to fight sin, I bear the fruit of the Spirit's work in my life. When I labor to grow in holiness, even when I take two steps back for every one step forward, I bear fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. And that means, friends, that Jesus' teaching in verse 45 should actually encourage us to fight all the more for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, this, this is the incredible power of the Gospel. Because of God's work to give me a new heart, I now have confidence and hope to face the reality of remaining sin in my life. I don't have to be like the hypocrite of verse 42 who hides things. I can own up to things because of God's work to make me new. I have hope that though the battle is fierce today, the war is actually over. Christ has won. The tomb is empty. The new creation will come. And that includes in my own heart and in my own life. And so armed with that hope, we fight, we labor, we strive to bear the good fruit that God calls us to bear. That's how you think about the fight against remaining sin. We live in between the tension of what God has already done and what is not yet finished in His work of making all things new. And that includes you and me. But it all begins with God's work in our hearts. That's the first truth that Jesus very clearly wants us to see. There is no true discipleship without heart transformation. And that leads into the second mark of true discipleship. Verses 46 to 49. True discipleship calls for heartfelt obedience. Following that transformation of the heart, true discipleship calls for heartfelt obedience. Again, we're confronted with the searing clarity of Jesus in verse 46. He leaves no room for being a Christian in name only. Listen to the Lord, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Friends, do you hear the Lord Jesus' clear authority there? There is no discipleship apart from submission to the Lordship of Christ. There's no discipleship. To be a Christian is to submit by faith to Jesus' Word. And that submission is then demonstrated in a life of increasing obedience. Increasing obedience. Now, note carefully that the standard there is not perfect obedience, but increasing obedience. There's a difference. And that obedience includes confessing sin, growing in holiness, and continual trust in the Gospel. The standard is increasing obedience, not perfect obedience. So let's not make Jesus say more than what He intends. He is not saying that you must have a track record of batting a thousand to be a Christian. But let's also not attempt to make Jesus say less than what He intends. He does insist on obedience to be His disciple. A person who consistently disobeys Christ over the whole course of their life is not a Christian in any source of the word. And remember, friends, believing the gospel is the first 
and foundational step of obeying Christ. Recall Jesus' words in John chapter 6. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So if we have to obey Christ, which we do, how do we obey Him? By believing the Gospel, He tells us in John chapter 6. That we are sinners and that Christ alone saves us through His sin-atoning death and His death-destroying resurrection. And then, having believed the Gospel, what do we do? We keep on believing the Gospel. We keep on trusting in Christ and we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. To follow Christ is to submit to His Lordship through His Word. That's verse 46. And at the same time, obedience to Christ is a high calling, isn't it? There's a cost to discipleship. And though we know that Jesus' commands are not burdensome, there's still a cost to be paid to obey Him. And the Lord Jesus knows this, which is why He paints a compelling picture in verses 47 to 49. Look there with me. Again, Jesus uses an image But instead of a tree, now he describes two houses. One built on a solid foundation, verse 47, and one built on no foundation at all, verse 49. Both houses are struck by a flood, but only one house stands. The house built on nothing collapses quickly, Jesus says, and the destruction is terrible. But the house built on the solid foundation endures. It stands firm. The waves crash, but the house doesn't move. Now, which house would you choose to live in? Of course, you'd pick the house that stands firm, right? You'd pick the house on the rock. The choice is clear. The wisdom is plain to see. And that's precisely Jesus' point, friends. That's precisely His point. He uses this compelling picture to show us the wisdom of obedience to His Word. Life will bring all sorts of storms, and those storms will rage and crash against us, and yet the life built on the Gospel will not fall. The life built on Scripture will stand firm. The life anchored in Jesus' Word will endure. Now, will there be some damage along the way? Will some of the paint get stripped off the house? Yes. Might some of the windows be broken in the flood? Very likely. Will the walls even shake and perhaps sway at times? Surely they will. But will that house fall? No, never. That's Jesus' promise. And that's the wisdom of building your life on the Gospel. The floods will rage, but the soul that takes refuge in Jesus will stand to the end. There's wisdom, there's life, there's safety and goodness and blessing found in obeying God's Word. Friends, what I'm trying to do is paint a more compelling picture for you as to why obedience matters as a Christian. Obedience to Scripture is an expression of faith and it's good for your soul. It's an expression of faith and it's good for your soul. When we obey the Bible, we are saying to God, I trust You, Father, and I trust You so much, I'm going to build my life on what You say. Obedience to Scripture is not about earning God's favor so that He pays us back with salvation. No, obedience rightly considered is the outworking of faith. I trust God and therefore I obey His Word. And it's good for me. It's good for my soul. 
This is the Christian life, friends. By grace, God has made our hearts new in Christ. And now by faith, we put those new hearts into action to obey the Word of God. Where is the Lord calling you to obey His Word this morning? Where is He calling you to obey? Is there an area of your life where you've been resisting His Lordship? Maybe a relationship, maybe the way you go about your work, maybe some aspect of your personal conduct, maybe in how you use your time or your finances. God wants all of you, brothers and sisters, not some of you, all of you. So where is the Lord calling you to obey His Word? And that's the place where the Spirit longs to work, to lead you into obedience. You know, Baptists used to be known as people of the book. That is, Baptists stood out for their simple but firm grounding in the Scriptures. I think we ought to go back to that. (laughs) Let's aim for lives that are marked by a word-driven simplicity. What the Bible says, we believe and do and love joyfully. Let's be people of the book. Let's make it clear that we are under the Lordship of Christ. Where is the Lord calling you to obey? I don't know where that area is, but I trust that there is one. Where is it? Ask the Lord to give you grace to obey His Word. As we close, there's one one last thing to Jesus' teaching that we should pay attention to. It's from verses 47 and to 49, and it has to do with the flood that crashes against the two houses. In the Bible, a flood often represents God's judgment. Think about Noah and the flood in Genesis chapter 6. The flood was God's judgment on the earth. And so it is throughout the, the Bible. Flood waters are associated with the judgment of God. So, when Jesus speaks of the flood, crashing against these two houses, he's not primarily talking about the trials of life in this world. He's primarily speaking of the judgment of God. And that judgment will come. And there's only one way to be saved when the flood rises, and that's to take refuge in Jesus Christ, to believe His gospel, and to hide yourself in Him, just like Noah was hid in the ark. And that means that this passage on discipleship ends with an encouragement and a call. The call is to anyone who has not trusted in Christ. If you're not a Christian today, your life right now is like that house built on nothing. When the flood of God's judgment comes, you won't stand. Your life will collapse. And you will be separated from God forever. Without Christ, you cannot be saved. So whether you are young or old, listen to me, whether you are young or old, whether you've heard the Gospel one time or many times, today is the day, friend, to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Right now, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that He is the Son of God who alone can save you from the flood of God's judgment. Trust Him. Build your life on Him and be saved. That's the only way to be saved. That's the call that ends this passage. Along with that, there's also the encouragement. 
of the gospel for those who believe. It's a simple observation, friends, but it's one that should encourage us. The house built on the rock survived the flood, praise God. So also the life built on Christ is saved from the judgment of God. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friends, what a hope we possess in Jesus Christ. What a treasure we've been given. Even when our struggle against sin is at its fiercest, we have this hope that the judgment of God will not crash down upon us and destroy us. For it crashed down upon Christ. The house built on the rock stood firm. You see, at the end of it all, this is true discipleship. It's being found in Christ, banking our lives on Him, and rejoicing in the gospel confidence that we've been given in the Lord. So I pray that the Lord would make us a church that delights in obedience to Christ so that the world would see there is no treasure so great as knowing the Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.